0: Welcome to episode 33 of the Talk Cancer podcast, where today I will be interviewing the incredible, the incomparable Jen Ball. So, Jen is a somatic sex coach and sexological bodywork practitioner. She's passionate about helping people come home to their bodies, their pleasure, and their power. And their practice focuses on embodiment and intimacy support, intentional pleasure practices, and integrating body and identity. So, after a family tragedy, Jen began a wholehearted journey with grief and PTSD. With a lot of deep work around belonging and identity, agency, and acceptance, their personal experience with transformative growth in the midst of devastation informs much of their work. Jen is privileged to create a warm and welcoming container for the most vulnerable explorations, for all of the feelings, and for the joy that comes with being fully and heartbreakingly human. I love that bio. Um, Whenever I interview somebody, I ask them to send me a bio that kind of sums up what they're all about what message they'd like to give to this particular audience and i feel like jen does such an incredible job of articulating how their work is very relevant and can be incredibly powerful for folks in the cancer community so i am in super duper excited to bring you this episode um just a little bit of an update on me i know it's been a while since you've heard from me gosh i was looking at the episode list and the last episode i put out was in late february march april yeah oh my goodness so yeah i've just been so busy and i do apologize uh, if you've been waiting on new episodes i just have to i think i've talked about this um in previous episodes just really 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 busy right now and trying to find a balance between Walking the walk and also feeling like I am providing great content for this community. I just really want to put out work that has integrity in terms of this stuff and it's a labor of love. I'm working six days a week right now and it's just been a lot So the podcast has kind of been on the back burner and I hope that you've been able to listen to other episodes, get information. I am, I've still got so many interviews to share and I've always got ideas. I'm constantly writing down. So anyway, but life is good. We are coming out of winter. We have arrived into spring in Portland, Oregon here. We had our first sunny, sunny day couple weeks ago and that was absolutely incredible and next week we are going to be up in the 80s and maybe even the 90s and then it looks like I don't know if it's going to go back down from there but I really appreciate how in Portland here you can have a beautiful sunny day and then the next day can be a thunderstorm I just think it's awesome I love the rain so I guess I'm in the right place know what I'm saying (laughs) Uh, yeah, Portland is awesome. I'm coming up on my year anniversary of being here and it's been such a great experience. I do miss my family out in California and other places, but I uh, it's a, it's a pretty quick hop, skip and a jump. I wish I got to get out there more often. That has been the hardest part, I think. But otherwise, Portland is just an incredible city. If you've never been here, you got to check it out. It's a great time to come too. Anyway, well, let's just get into this episode because you are going to really enjoy our conversation, I think, and I've been doing a lot of workshops with some of the local breast cancer organizations here in Portland, a lot around just finding your way back to self-love after cancer and some of the uh, sexual difficulties that cancer survivors experience and just the body stuff. You know, some of us, I would venture to say, have never felt at home in our bodies or never felt at peace with our relationship with our bodies. And I think that's why this work that Jen is doing is so incredibly powerful and empowering. So... Without further ado, let's just jump into the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Tata Cancer Podcast, where we will discuss the physical and mental elements of healing from a breast cancer diagnosis. My name is Junie Boucher, I'm a nutritional therapy practitioner and a breast cancer survivor. When you're diagnosed with breast cancer, you're forced to make life-changing decisions with so much information that's really hard to sift through. My intention is to help provide you with the information you need to make a decision that's going to align your body, mind, and heart so that you can live your best life going forward. I'm going to be your new breast friend. Okay, let's do this. The information contained in this podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. Please always consult with your doctor for any of your medical needs. I am super excited today to welcome Jen Ball, a certified somatic sex coach and sexological body worker to the show today. Thanks so much for being here, Jen.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me.
0: So all of those words I just said, I remember the first time I heard them, I said, "I what is that? what does that mean? <laughs> so uh, that's my first question to you is, Tell us what sexological bodywork and and certified somatic sex coaching is if you could.
1: Mm. Yeah, of course. Uh we're a pretty small um and growing field, so it's not surprising when folks don't know what the heck I'm talking about. Um, you know, somatic sex coaching and sexological bodywork are um, you know, a modality that really involves helping people kind of come home to their bodies and be present in the body. Uh, both of those terms do include the word sex. And so people tend to think it's very much about arousal and eroticism, and it can be about that. Um, But first, it's always about embodiment. How do we be in the body? How do we know what our body is trying to tell us? Um, How do we um, begin to honor that and be present for it? And that, that includes not only the the physical of what's present in the body, but the emotional, the narrative content as well. Um, and so we use a lot of movement and breath and sound. Um, we work a lot on boundary setting and communication. Um, there's a lot of presence work. You know, how do you be present with, um, sensation in the body? How do you be present with, um, pleasure if that's what you want to be present with? Um, and how do you communicate about those things to partners um, if you're choosing to be engaging with partners uh, on a physical level? Um, and so it's something that, you know, we do for people who are struggling with libido, struggling with orgasm, struggling with body image or body identity. Um, but it can also just be about, you know, how do I even exist in this body? A lot of us in this culture kind yeah. of exist, you know, from the shoulders up, and what is happening below the shoulders um, is something we don't want to think about. We aren't able to think about, um, there's almost an antagonistic relationship sometimes between what we think of as ourselves, meaning our brain, um, and the body. And so often we are starting there, you know, how do you move home into the body? How do you become friends with your body? Um, and, and that's the foundation for all of this work. And then from there, you know, can you start to, um, resource yourself with your body? Can you, um, be in relationship with your body in such a way that it supports you as you're navigating trauma, as you're navigating relationships, as you're, um, you know, living a a alive, awake life. Um, and so that's, that's kind of how I think about it.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. And Yeah, one of the major reasons why I thought you would be a fantastic guest for this show is because so many breast cancer patients do struggle with finding their way back into their body. Or honestly, for myself, I feel like even prior to my cancer journey and prior to losing sensation in parts of my body that were removed surgically, I have struggled with being in my body period. So I don't think this is something that is isolated to folks who've gone through physical trauma. Clearly it's something that almost anybody could really benefit from. And a lot of people have, um, you know, it, it amazes me when I hear people say they've never had an orgasm or
1: yeah.
0: now as I'm getting older, just, discovering that hormonal changes later in life or whether it's through uh, chemically induced menopause or hormone blockers that it can be harder to have an orgasm. Yes. (laughs) And I, you know, that that's another one of those things where you learn about post cancer life or paramenopause or menopause or, um, that is just another one of those things where I think to myself, God, are you kidding me <laughs> right now? You're going to make that harder too. Like I'm giving less fucks about yeah. like what I look like and feeling more empowered, but then just mechanically I'm going to be having problems. That's thanks. Um, so I love that you, uh, and I know you, have you have worked with
1: with breast cancer patients in the past, mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, I have. And and I just, you know, it's important for me to acknowledge when I'm working with folks with breast cancer history that I have never had breast cancer myself. I've had a couple of close calls, lots of biopsies. I've had surgical biopsies and so many mammograms I've lost count, but I've never walked that path. Um, so it's really important to me to honor that difference. Um, but the breast cancer patients that I have worked with, the survivors I've worked with, you know, has have really I mean, on the one hand, it's been some of the most profound and joyful work that I have done. Um, you know, to be able to be part of that kind of homecoming after people have been, you know, really put through it, and you know, really helping someone kind of come back to themselves after a journey like that is such a gift for me as a practitioner. Um, you know, and I've I've learned so much from those clients about the work I do for other people as well. Um, so yeah, that kind of happened very organically for me. Uh, I just got lucky to have some folks walk through my my life who've been on this journey and and we've been um, you know, really lucky to find each other, i think yeah. you you meant you've mentioned
0: in some of our just prior conversations outside of podcasting that one thing that you mentioned to me, I remember I had a physical reaction. It, it just sounded like such a powerful thing was about witnessing.
1: Mm.
0: Like what was the term you used for that? Was it Probably witnessing? witnessing? Okay. Yeah. okay, Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that, you know, it's one thing for a breast cancer patient if you do have breasts and if you do have mm. breasts removed to look at it yourself the, for the first time, that's, you know, always right. a really big moment, but then there's the hurdle of having another human being witnessing your body. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think that's so incredible to think that someone could hire a person like you to, really be a compassionate witness to, to that type of experience. And I know what are some other specific things, if if you don't mind, like Mm -hmm. that you've, you've worked on with, with breast cancer patients that have been, you know, helpful. I know like with, I know that losing that sensation can be a big thing and Mm -hmm. some of the sexual side effects as well.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I would love to just speak to the witnessing piece for just a minute because that's like, such a, a wonderful practice. Um, you know, I think that, like you say, there's something about undressing, revealing ourselves. It's hard for a lot of us, whether we've had this experience or not. And it's especially hard when your body's been shifted and changed when your relationship with your body is, is so different because of the experience you've gone through. Um, and so we do have practices where we can, you know, gradually begin to undress, sometimes that's not just a single moment that can be a process over a couple of sessions to get to that point. Um, And then once you do kind of allow yourself to be seen, there's something really powerfully healing about being received in that moment, you know, and having that opportunity to be witness for someone. One of my favorite sessions was with a, a client who Um, took her shirt off and then just held her own chest and spoke to her breasts or reconstructed breasts and, and talked about how grateful she was for them. And that like, to get to that point for her had taken a while, like that was a pretty miraculous moment from where she started. Um, But just to, just to be present for that process of her kind of reclaiming herself in that way. Um, so, yeah. witnessing is one of my favorite things to do. Um, scar mapping is another practice that I think has a lot of um, potential for folks, and, and it can be a couple of different levels. So, on the most physical level, there's just really physically mapping the scar with touch. You know, what is present there from a sensation perspective? Where is it numb? Can you amplify or mute sensation by shifting the way you're touching with pressure or different kinds of? Um, touch? Can you bring vibration in or something that maybe makes it a different feeling than you have or have not had before? Um, But then also in addition to the physical, what is there from a, a narrative perspective? What is your story of your scar? What is the story that touching that scar brings forward for you? What emotion is there? And it gives you an opportunity to do a lot of integration of what is present physically, but also what is present, you know, from a soul perspective, you know, in terms of the whole of the journey. Um, and so mapping is one of my favorite things to do, and you can actually, you know, um, play with sensation in those numb areas as well. So, you know, can you use active imagination to move your hand from a part of the body that has sensation towards the part that doesn't have sensation? And can you, you know, believe and feel that sensation um, using that imagination and moving that touch from one place to the other, where maybe you might not, if you just touch it directly from, from the beginning. And can you amplify and grow nerve endings and sensation over time by continuing touch and, and trying to amplify that using pleasurable touch? Um, there's a lot of, a lot of fun stuff you can do there with, with scars and, and kind of the topography of the chest.
0: Yeah, that, yeah, that's so, that's so amazing. And how, I mean, so when, when someone works with you I mean, I'm, I'm assuming it's gotta be very individualized, but do you have like a specific process or pathway that you typically go, or are you just kind of making it up as you go along in terms of what that person needs?
1: Yeah, it's very individualized. Um, Mm -hmm. And because our bodies are all very different and they've all had different paths. And so this work is, uh, can be very slow work because we don't ever go faster than the body is ready for. And especially bodies that have been through a medical trauma. Mm -hmm. you know, where there's a loss of agency to some degree where things are being done to your body um, through treatment. Um, You know, there's a need to make sure that you're really going at the speed the body is ready for. Um, And so that can be really different for folks. So people who come to me, you know, years after their treatment is over may have a very different place where they're just really wanting to kind of work on libido and, you know, being able to feel really comfortable in their bodies sexually. And that's a very different path than somebody who's, you know, just gotten their diagnosis and really needs to understand, like, how do I be friends with my body through this very intense experience? Or somebody who's in the middle of treatment and is really trying to resource themselves um, in their body and be present for their body as their body is going through, you know, something really difficult. And I think that's an interesting element of this. Like our body is going through a trauma And the thing we think of as ourselves, our mind, our heart is also going through a trauma. And how do you start to bring those together so that there's a sense of like, we've been in this together, we can help each other through. Mm. Um, And so that's a, those can be very different entry points depending on where somebody's at.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, I know a lot of my, the listeners of this podcast have struggled with sexual side effects from medication, hormone blockers, going through hormonal changes and stuff like that. And, you know, a lot of folks are going through that just because age, you know, changes, stuff like that. What would be, I don't, I mean, I know obviously I'm not sure if you can even answer this, but I mean, if there was a, an issue with libido, how does that typically, like, what are some of the pathways that you, you walk through that to help someone increase that?
1: Yeah. Libido is one of it's libido is a great thing to work with because it's one of those things that if you, you know, let it be dormant, it will stay dormant, but if you start to work with it, it will start to kind of reawaken. Um, And so, you know, you've mentioned several reasons that your libido might take a hit and age and menopause are certainly um, some of those reasons, but also like divorce or relational trauma can be another reason. Um, And the, the place you start is in just learning how to be present in the body. So starting to do things, we have an exercise called waking up the hands where you just hold something in your hand and really notice all the sensations that you have, notice the textures of it, notice, you know, the weight of it. And doing that over a few days can really start to waken up the sensations and the nerves in your fingers and your hands. And then you kind of start building on that with the rest of your body. Um, I do something called masturbation coaching or, or self-pleasure coaching, um, which is really just around starting to notice what, What is present in the body? Is there pleasure present? Is there numbness present? And how do you start to work with that, um, through different exercises through experimentation? Um, a lot of us, no matter what our journey has been, when we start to have, you know, kind of a depressed libido, um, have been trying to engage with ourselves actually the same way for a very long time. So very habitual Mm. behaviors. so part of it is getting out of habit, you know, can you, um, you know, be on your knees instead of on your back? Can you move instead of being still? Can you um, be really loud or sing a song or do something very different than, you know, kind of being quiet or really, you know, having your sound be close to your chest and your throat? Um, You know, what does standing do? What does movement and dancing do? Um, You know, can you bring music in? And so really playing and seeing what can be present and noticing where your body has a curiosity and following it. Um, Mm. and so libido is definitely something that you can cultivate, that you can amplify. Um, and it's a process, like once you start to learn how to have a, an intentional practice around pleasure, that is a skill that you take with you through injury, illness, you know, life changes, age, um, different relationships, like those are skills you take with you. And once you learn how to do it, then you can do it for yourself you know over and over again as as things shift for you because our bodies really do change over time the things yeah. that worked for me for pleasure you know 10 years ago even 5 years ago don't work for me at all now like it's a whole new body almost yeah um, and so that that journey is um you know i find that to be really fun because i know that when i'm helping people with that that that's a skill that they can take with them into whatever comes up for them later on
0: oh you articulated that so well and i was noticing when you were talking about that and just the, the element of experimentation and play, mm. which seems like such a simple concept and presence, but it's such a struggle for so many of us. And even in myself as someone, I feel like I'm someone who's on board with that approach, but still there is this weird part of me and I don't know if it's just cultural or what, but feels there's a, a tentativeness or or a fear or um a reluctance to you know stop and be present and take the time. Mm-hmm. I think we like to rush through things. And plus we're such a goal-oriented species, you know, where I think so many people think about the goal is orgasm. How can we mm-hmm. get there as fast as possible? Which really can can miss. You know, make us miss so much of the good stuff. And recognizing, yeah, that the orgasm isn't necessarily the cherry on top, or mm-hmm. or the pot of gold at the end of the
1: rainbow. We are you very know. capitalist in the way we masturbate, right? Yes. We're very much trying to get to that accomplishment at the end, that achievement, yes. and we tend to rush right through the the pleasure and the exploration, and the curiosity, and usually when I'm working with folks with libido, one of the first things I ask is if they're willing to take orgasm off the table for a little while, Mm. um, and just experience pleasure and arousal and shift arousal up and down and just see what that feels like without trying to come to some conclusion that can be really hard, especially if you're a person who, you know, masturbates to go to sleep, Mm -hmm. um, you know, who has a very utilitarian focus on, on orgasm. Um, And for those folks, I'm usually, one of the things that we like to do is say, just, just carve out, you know, 15, 25, 30 minutes for yourself, you know, every couple of days and have an intentional pleasure session, you know, where you set the amount of time you're going to have, you kind of have an idea of what you want to play with and practice with. And then, um, you know, when it's, when the time's up, the time's up and just notice what you learned, what was present for yourself, record it, write it down. And then play again another couple of days later and see what's present that time. Just continue to explore. Mm. You can still have your utilitarian, I need to go to sleep orgasm if you need to, but carve out some time that's just for exploration. That can be a really fun way to start to build those skills.
0: Yeah, that's, that is great. And again, even, I mean, I do so much with mindfulness and I'm a huge fan of Lori Brado who Mm. does a lot of this work. Um, And it's just, it it amazes me when I think about it. I mean, I love to meditate for, for me, a sweet spot is 20 to 25 minutes. That's a really Mm. good amount of time for me when I feel like I really feel the benefits. Um, But that, that feels so big to a lot of people just to think, you know, all we have 24 hours in a day and the difficulty (laughs) we have with giving 15 minutes to something like a pleasuring session, which would have exponential benefit to our lives. And not only just getting to feel pleasure but knowing your body more and creating more fulfilling experiences uh, down mm. the line and just a sense of knowing of yourself i think that's pretty that's a really empowering feeling to have
1: mm, yeah there's a um part of this practice that we call embodied consent and it's really around you know knowing what your body is actually trying to tell you, you know, what does a yes feel like in the body? What does no feel like? What does curiosity or maybe feel like? And then from there, you know, how do you start articulating those things that you can ask for what you want and also create boundaries about things you don't want. And what's interesting is that the asking for what you want is one of the hardest things people can do, but what's especially interesting is that the receiving of what you want is almost harder. People Mm. have a really hard time receiving the things that they really want. It's a very vulnerable space. And so one of the things we do there is we, um, when we're first starting is we create very small time packages. So you can ask for what you want, knowing that you're only asking for it to receive it for like 30 seconds. 30 seconds can feel like a lot of time. And so what you're talking about now, about 25 minutes of meditation feels like an awful lot. One of the ways we work with that. In my modality, is that we start with very small um, amounts of time because it's hard and it it allows people to ask for something knowing that it's not like this huge burden. People tend to have this sense that asking for a thing is putting a burden on someone else. Yeah. Um, And it's easier to do that when you know you're only asking for it for like 30 seconds or three breaths or something like that. Yeah. When you're building a practice for your own self, you can also start very small you know maybe you're going to spend 5 minutes and all you're going to do is take your fingertips and you know move them up and down your arm from your elbow to your shoulder and just see what that feels like and mm-hmm. that could be the hardest thing you've done in weeks yeah um, so letting yourself start small letting yourself have um you know really bite sized experiences can be a way in um when something like a 25 minute pleasure practice might sound completely out of your <laughs> reach
0: you <laughs> right know. right and i think it's great to know that, yeah, you, you work in these bite-sized increments based upon where the person Mm -hmm. is at in their own journey, because I do know some folks who, yeah, to, to try to jump into something, you know, pleasure mapping in the general area would feel really overwhelming, but Yeah. yeah, sure. I can touch my, my elbow to my wrist or, or whatever. You know, I think that, Yeah. That's great to know that it's a process that can be eased into. And, you know, it's Mm -hmm. funny too, you mentioned about the asking. I know that is such a hard thing for so many people you feel, and I'm curious why too, because to be honest, whenever a partner has asked me for something, um, I've always been pretty excited that they, you know, knew what they wanted and, you know, I could I mean, I've never been in a situation where I was not cool with the thing that they were asking for. So I guess that would create a different sort of situation. But, um, you know, I always feel like it's kind of a relief sometimes mm. for people to to tell you what they like, because, you know, it is, we can't read each other's minds and the exploration is is part of the the pleasure, but also Mm. sometimes it's nice to just get the answers to the test. Sure.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But absolutely. I do think that, um, it's hard for us to be seen, right. There's vulnerability in saying the things that we really want, especially around sex. There's, you know, a fairly puritanical element to our sexuality in this country. and, And so it can be hard to say out loud. I want these things. Yeah. Um, and it's also hard. I, I talked to um, a breast cancer survivor a few weeks ago who said something about how much her family had already done for her mm. and asking for anything more felt hard. Mm. And that was about something like very found, you know, foundational and, and basic. And it was, I could feel that in my own chest, like the weight of that sense of responsibility of what had already been asked. Um, and then also there's that, like, we want to be seen, we want to be received, but it's so frightening So yeah. there's so many elements there. I think when it comes to, you know, asking for those things and receiving those things. And of course, once you add on that, you know, um, if you are a woman or a sexual minority and you've been you know raised to kind of subvert the things that you want, um, and, you know, not voice those, um, and there's judgment, there has been judgment there, then it's even harder. Yeah. And, and there is, I mean, I've been
0: kind of studying for a while, some specific personality traits that have been attributed to breast cancer patients Mm -hmm. and putting your needs below everybody else's, which I think is very common for a lot of humans, Mm -hmm. um, that, uh, It that when you said that, I just felt like, oh my gosh, so many people, you said, I felt it in my chest. So many people listening to what you just said are going to relate to that because yeah, you feel like, oh my gosh, people did so much for me, maybe financially, emotionally, um, Mm. you know, driving me places, just sitting with me, crying with me. Like there is this huge feeling of, um, gratitude a lot of the times, but also guilt. Mm. I think that you've asked for so much and, um, yeah, I just think I've noticed with a lot of the folks in the population that I've worked with, because it's been something I've been doing a lot of recently, uh, talking to breast cancer patients about just kind of coming home to their bodies again. And, Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, what a struggle that's been for so many people dealing with this disease, but also the idea of communicating (laughs) with a partner has been terrifying. And so when in your work, is it
1: something that you, do you work with couples? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And I, I'll just share one experience with you. Um, this wasn't a couple I was working with. This was uh, an individual and we were doing a lot of that uh, embodied consent work and, and really trying to, it, I could tell it was a struggle t- for them to really understand what this really meant, you know, ask, like, they just heard the word consent and we're like, that doesn't sound fun. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think a lot of people do when they think about consent. Oh, that's funny. Um, but over the course of working together, what they really noticed is that when they asked for the things they wanted and then received them, and this was very like this were platonic things, you know, very non-sexual things, that there was an easing in their body, like an actual relaxing because they'd asked for something, I'd heard it, and then I'd been able to do that. And then it was like they were received you know, with no judgment, no expectation, just, you know, kindness. Um, and one time they asked for something and I had, it was a boundary for me. And I mm-hmm. said, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Uh-huh. And then what was really fascinating about that moment was just like, Oh, right. Boundaries. <laughs> and it was almost like, that was what opened them up because they could say, I can ask you for all the things I want, knowing that you will hold your own boundaries And I don't have to worry about whether it's too much for you or not, because you own that. That's not mine to own. Mm. And that was just such a beautiful breakthrough. Um, And I think that's what we hope for in our relationships, that we can know each other for real and enough that we can say the things that might be vulnerable, knowing that they'll be received and held and returned in kind. um, And that we can always talk together to negotiate and navigate Differences to find a place where we can both land together, and so helping people with that kind of communication um, is a real pleasure to do. Um, helping people to work on libido differences and things that are a little bit, you know, um, mm. challenging for us to talk about—that's also um, a real sweet spot with this work.
0: Yeah, and I mean that's such a common thing, obviously, mm-hmm. but wow, that's so powerful. I can only imagine what that felt like, not only, yeah, to just recognize that and for them to be able to receive your boundary and realize, oh, okay. Yeah. That can, that's not this huge rejection That's Mm -hmm. she's not mad at me. Mm -hmm. You know, she's not repulsed by me. Right. You know, I mean, and who knows what the emotions are that will come up. Obviously it's not a cookie cutter thing, but I think to experience someone, um, enforcing their boundary with kindness, Mm -hmm. how that could also be very freeing and definitely create more intimacy for a couple because you're recognizing you're safe with me. I'm safe with you. Mm -hmm. Um, even when I reveal a desire that you can't receive or, um, you know, participate in, and I, I also think that's great. How you were talking about the informed consent is what you said, the embodied, embodied consent. Yeah, yeah. because, <laughs> I mean, just how we were talking about being in your your body, even before a physical trauma like a cancer diagnosis, it's just difficult for people, and mm-hmm. so many of us don't know what it feels like to. Yeah. When someone brings up something in a sexual, a sexual desire that mm-hmm. you've never tried before, there are a lot of layers to that. You know, yeah, sometimes sure. it feels, you know, there's, it's, it's, you have preconceived notions about it that might block you from it, but may, yeah, there are ways that you can kind of determine, I don't know, am I open to this? Mm-hmm. And if I am open to this, what does that look like? How do I, how do I explore it in a safe way? So it sounds like that's something you help people navigate as well.
1: Yeah, for sure. And what I find most interesting about embodied consent is that, you know, we tend, the dialogue in our culture is very much around consent as a sex specific thing. But when you start doing embodied consent work, the, all you're really doing is starting to turn back on the pathway between your body and your brain and and the intuition that the body has, the information that your body is giving you um, that we've tended to shut off. So that is something that you take to your relationship with your employer, your parents, your family, your friends, strangers on the street, like anything that comes up that somebody is, you know, moving into your space or asking you to, you know, work overtime or whatever, you know knowing what your body is telling you, like, that's a no for me <laughs> like yeah, or that's, yeah, I could do that. But can we negotiate that a little bit? Maybe it's only six hours instead of eight or something like that. Like your body is giving you a lot of information. Yeah. And so being able to start tuning into that. And I think for me as a person who, you know, until a handful of years ago was a very anxious person you know, hmm. I'd never trusted my own intuition because I was so anxious all the time. Like, why could I rely on what my body was telling me? It was always kind of buzzing with anxiety. And so hmm. being able to get back to a place where I could listen to what my body was telling me and trust it, you know, and know that what was happening here was actually real information for me that I could use to make decisions, to have conversations that's helped me in every area of my life. You know, certainly. Yeah in terms of interpersonal relationships and intimate relationships, but it's not limited to that. And that's been, you know, one of the treats of it.
0: Yeah. I can only imagine working in this field would be very (laughs) life-changing for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Wow. And I, I appreciate you sharing that prior feeling of anxiety because I Mm -hmm. think in today's world, anxiety is such a big thing for people and, sometimes it sneaks up on you. I, I was noticing yeah. in myself the other day, because I mean, I, I I do consider myself pretty calm, pretty grounded. Um, I have a lot of tools for anxiety that I use that I think are effective, but I was observing kind of in hindsight, you know, some recent experiences I had where I realized, oh, I was incredibly anxious and I was not aware. And, you yeah. know, <laughs> I, and that's why I did this. Um, and that, that was interesting. I was very, it was very curious for me to witness that and and then to kind of look at how that's played out in previous, um, moments that were similar to that and how, oh, this thing really makes me anxious, but I don't seem to acknowledge it, Mm. um, cerebrally or intellectually. I, I, I thought my way through it. So I feel like I understand it, but there is a physiological thing that's happening (laughs) that for some reason I'm not allowing myself to acknowledge. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so I just think, yeah, being able to, to be in our bodies and, and have that communication is so powerful and, and so good for just our self-care.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think another piece of that is once you know what your body is trying to say to you, communicating back with it. And mm. I think especially for people who are in situations not of their choosing, right? If you are in treatment and you know that you have to do that treatment and it's going to be hard. There're going to be so many things there that you wouldn't choose, things done to your body that you don't want, and yet you are going to do anyway. And so how do you how do you feel that in the body and then how do you start talking to your body like you would to your best friend? Like, I'm Mm. like, this is going to be hard for us. Like, what do we, how do we support each other through this? Um, and sometimes I will just have that conversation, you know, as if my body is a separate piece of me, um, Mm. because that's what helps me feel like we're actually together more than, more than other practices sometimes. And so you'll hear sometimes in therapy, people talk about having conversations with your inner child. I do that with my body a lot. And sometimes Mm. in very simple ways, like if I'm driving around town and I really need to pee, I'll be like, I'll pat myself on the thigh a little bit and be like, I know, like we're so close, (laughs) like 20 (laughs) more minutes till we get home. And then it's all you, (laughs) but part of it is really trying to reestablish trust with your body. And especially when you're in situations where your body is feeling, you know, done to, um, Mm -hmm. if you have ever had your agency taken away bodily, that can be a really important thing to start doing to start giving back that agency to your body and communicating can be a really powerful way to do that.
0: I love that. That's a great takeaway tool of just, you know, trying to, to cope. Cause like you said, yeah, I mean, there are times when we'll be able to recognize, oh, this doesn't feel good, but mm-hmm. we don't have a choice. Nice. Um, or, but also the trust piece I think is really huge with this community because you know the idea that a lot of people feel whether it's conscious or unconscious is my body attacked me yeah. um you know and with with cancer my concept of cancer has really shifted in into, you know, this was, I really look at cancer as, as the body trying to heal and cope with something. And it just kind of things just went a little bit awry. Um, right. So I really always tried to approach things as how can I love and support my body through this, as opposed to how can I fight and are my breasts trying to kill me and how to, yeah. you know, being in war, um, that, that wasn't, that didn't work for me. I mean, everybody's got their own approach that, mm-hmm. um, you know, they're yeah, I think that's a very personal thing, but just re-establishing trust with your body is, is a huge part of the healing process, uh, during and after a cancer diagnosis. Um, so if, if folks, I know you're, you're in the Portland area. Yeah. I mean, is this a type of work that can be done remote?
1: Yeah, I do have remote clients and there are certainly, you know, some of the things that I do aren't possible to do remotely in quite the same way. Um, But, but even when I'm doing touch-based practices, the whole purpose of my touch is to serve as a focal point, you know, so if I'm using, you know, my my finger to touch, you know, the, the beginning of a person's scar, that's not about that person feeling my touch. That's about that person being able to focus in on the sensation more closely. So if I go to my physical therapist and they say, you know, move that muscle or, you know, tense it or relax it, I'm doing my best, but if they touch the muscle that they're talking about, then I can really hone in. And so my touch in this practice is very similar to that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, I don't have the only hands in the room, in the virtual Mm -hmm. room, you know, my clients have their own hands as well. And so I can help guide them through those practices on their own. It's a little different, but it's still very powerful. And a lot of the work I do doesn't involve touch at all. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, um, yeah, it's possible to do it virtually. It's great to do it in person. Um, and some people who are local, like the remove of the of a Zoom conversation, um, for a little while. So people have their own their own ways. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, both are both are definitely possible.
0: So what as we kind of wrap things up, I mean, what uh, what are some of your current like offerings and mm-hmm. and how can people get in touch with you?
1: Yeah, well, I am going to obviously give you my website information. Yes. I'm on Instagram as well, so I'll give you all of that. Um. I do work with clients, um, individually. I will work with couples, um, as well. And, um, you know, I, like I said, my offerings really vary based on who a person is and what they're coming to me for and, and where their body says they're at. Um, you know, sometimes I'll have somebody come in and they're like, I want to work on my orgasm. I'm like, okay, what does your body say? Mm. <laughs> um, let's start with embodiment first. Um, cause that's what your body is, is demonstrating that it needs to do. Um, so the practices are very different person to person, um, but individual coaching, couples coaching, that's kind of, uh, the gist of, of the work that we're doing right now.
0: And do you do a free consult? Like if people want to talk to you about, Hey, this is, these are my issues and you could kind of recommend, Mm -hmm. um, you know, okay, that is, yeah. And of course this would all be posted in the, the show notes, um, Wow Jen I just think what you're doing is amazing and and I yeah so such great work and I think really powerful for anybody um so